0: If you want to grow up into spiritual maturity as a man or woman of God, then there is an issue in your spiritual growth that you cannot neglect. It's a a crucial element to ongoing maturity. And I want to introduce this element to you today and simply call it your motivation for loving and serving God. But first, before I address the issue of your motivation before God, I just want to, for a second, to tell you what God has done. We know that the motivation of God is love. We know that selfless, sacrificial love is what motivated God to send His own Son in the likeness of man and to die on behalf of man. God's motive is to give you the keys to the kingdom. God's motive is to bring you into forgiveness. God's motive is to bring you into healing and wholeness and the gift of eternal life. God's motive is to raise you up and seat you with Him in the heavenly places. God's motive is to erase your past and give you a future and a hope in Him. And God's motive has always been your blessing, your fulfillment, raising you up. And um, God's heart towards you is to not only give you Christ, but anything and everything in addition that you would need to live out His purposes uh, through you. Romans 8.32 says that God did not spare us His only Son, but gave Him up for you. Then how shall he not also with Christ give you freely all things, everything that you need for life and godliness? It's the intention, it's the heartbeat and the burden and the pure motivation of God to get all of that to you. It's the heart of God that you would know him. And so God makes himself known He comes and knocks at the door of your heart. He woos and convicts and stirs and draws you first. And so, yeah, God has done everything out of a motive of pure love towards you, to reach you. And now the door is open for you to come in, for you to draw near, for you to respond. And this is a crucial element that you cannot ignore, how will you respond and what motivation will you have for now seeking God out? This issue of motivation is brought out best in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 23-25. through 25. It says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover, There were many that believed into his name because they saw all the various signs which he did. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. And he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he knew himself what was in the man. You will see today that it's one thing to believe into Jesus, but it's altogether another thing for Jesus to entrust himself to you. And apparently, if we can just look at this text, it seems as though those who believed into Jesus believed into the signs, but they had mixed motives for following him. And as a result, he did not entrust the depths of his being to them. It's as though there was a portion of him that he blocked off from them. There was a portion of God that they were not going to know. Why? Because they had mixed motives. And my question to you today is, why are you serving God? Why are you walking with him? Why are you following him? And What's the motive of your heart? In John chapter 2, we have two um, accounts that John narrates for us. Okay, the one account is in Cana. It's an account of feasting, celebration, wedding, and the turning of the water into wine. And we've covered that a little bit. The other account is Jesus uh, cleansing the temple and driving out commerce and in a way saying zeal for god's house has consumed me don't make my father's house a place of commerce and trade and a place of human gain my father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer and we see the lord very irate there in um, the second portion of john chapter 2. now follow with me for just a second as I set up an imaginary situation for you, okay? The first miracle that Jesus did, also the first sign, you better believe that attracted a lot of people to Jesus' cause. When Jesus played bartender there in Cana of Galilee without a liquor (laughs) license, He kept the party going for days on end. I mean, that's kind of... That's that's an attraction for a lot of people. I want in on the Jesus band. I want in on the Jesus wagon because he supplies joy. He supplies uh, festivities, um, happiness, drinking, revelry. He supplies, you know, wedding, love, celebration. And there are, to this day, a lot of people that loves this side of Jesus, And when we, the preachers, make the invitation, come and accept Jesus, we present such a Jesus. Oh, come to Jesus and it's feasting. Come to Jesus and it is wedding. Come to Jesus and it is marriage and honeymoon and love. Come to Jesus and the joy never runs out. Come to Jesus and it's happiness. And people are are touched by that kind of a Jesus. The bartender Jesus. They raise their hand, they take a knee, count me in, in your prayer, preacher. And so folk accept that Jesus, and yeah, this is the kind of Jesus then that they see in the Bible, that they love. This is almost exclusively the only way, the only paradigm that they follow and that they see this particular Jesus. He is the one that makes the new wine flow. Is the Lord such a Jesus? Amen. He is the happy Jesus. The wine giving Jesus. John tells us another incident the furious Jesus, the mad Jesus, Jesus the cleanser, the sanctifier, Jesus the one who's serious, who means business, and he comes into the temple and he drives out the worldliness. This is the deliverance Jesus. This is the Jesus that wherever he is, there's holiness. And there's the fear of God, and there is honor and reverence, and the house of God, zeal for God's house uh, has consumed me. This is the zealous Jesus, and uh, even the Jesus that said, my Father's house should be a house of prayer. And we love prayer and intercession and zeal and holiness, and we love cleansing and deliverance and get everything in order, and we love this kind of a Jesus. So it's like the serious Jesus versus the wine giving Jesus. And what happens is inadvertently two groups of people begin to follow Jesus. The one group, are the wine lovers. Yay! It's a happy hour. I mean it's happy life. It's eternal happy life. And then when the furious Jesus comes into their world to whip their temple and drive out the stuff of this world, they get very upset. Like This is not what I signed up for. How does Jesus declare war on my flesh and drive out the stuff out of my life? Oh, that's a wrong Jesus, you know, and they're offended and they're troubled by this kind of a whipping Jesus. Can you all follow with me? Now there's others who are so devoted to the serious whipping Jesus. Christian life is very serious, but then Jesus comes into their life and just wants to make them a little bit more happy, you know, just pour some sugar on their life a little bit and just, you know, Jesus does not want to be so serious. He just wants to feast a little bit and celebrate. And folk have a tough time going over to the celebratory side of Jesus because this is not the Jesus I serve. The Jesus I serve is very serious. Right is right, wrong is wrong, temple is holy, cleanse this thing, right now, zeal, prayer. And so all those folk who are laughing in the Lord and cutting up and living happy and joyous and have abundance, ooh, I despise those people. So the serious followers of Jesus, they despise the silly followers, the wine-drinking followers. And there's the wine-drinking followers. They look down their nose on the serious followers and like, y'all just need to get a life. Smile a little. Don't take it too seriously, man. Drink a little. Come. And you find two groups of people that believe into Jesus. In fact, if you read the next sentence now after these two accounts, see what happens. Look, verse 23. It says, when uh, the Lord was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during that festival, <coughs> it says there in verse 23 that many believed into his name when they saw the signs which he did. Question. Signs are for what? Why do the Lord perform sometimes signs and miracles and little breakthroughs and little deliverances? To provoke us to faith, right? To provoke us to, to provoke our attention so that we can believe. It's so simple. They see the signs and they believe. So can all of you agree that we now have a lot of people who are followers of Jesus, A lot of people who are believing in Jesus. Notice actually in your Bible it says many believed into His name. Mm -hmm. And either they heard about the wine being multiplied and they're like, Oh, I want in on that Messiah. I want to follow that guy. Because with Him, (laughs) I don't even need to be of age to drink. It's just happy hour. Mm -hmm. I love that kind of a Jesus. And then Jesus comes into the temple. He cleanses the temple, and I'm sure a few people said, this is the kind of zealot Messiah we need. Somebody who can stand up to the religious institution. Somebody that can stand up to the the corruption. Oh, I want to be in on that kind of a Jesus. The Jesus who cleanses and reforms. The, The revolutionary Jesus. So in this portion, I hope you can clearly see that motives play an enormous role in Jesus entrusting his heart to you. Um, In a way, there were those who followed Jesus because he afforded them happy hour. We covered that. There are those who believe into Jesus and perhaps want to follow him because he's a kind of a revolutionary figure. Whatever constitution you are as a person... That's often the Jesus that we sculpt. It's just, in a way, idolatry. Initially, God made man in his image, and I guess now we are repaying the favor, making God into our image. So if your inner constitution is, let's say, prosperity, then we make Jesus to be this prosperity guru, and all that we then want from him is to, let's say, supply me with prosperity other people they have the need for enlightenment they have the need for let's say intellectual understanding and so they craft jesus they create jesus they have this motive to make jesus just this intellectual guru and and jesus is to spit out answers There are others that make Jesus to be some political figure. Why? Because they are ambitious at the core of their being, and they have this lust for power and for dominance and for influence. And so that's the kind of a Jesus that they see in the Scriptures, and that's the Jesus they want to serve. Whoever you are, if if God cannot sanctify the condition of your inner being, then chances are very likely that you will... Sculpt Jesus in your predispositional, constitutional image. And that is something that I now want to address. And Jesus goes and he does maybe a few healings here and a few things there. We know that in the coming chapters here in John, he did a healing of a blind man. And people are seeing all of this and like, man, I'm casting my vote with that man. I'm going to support his cause, his movement. Anything wrong with that? Not really. But notice verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. People are ready to support your cause. People are so in need of revolution and change. And you come and you do a few signs and wonders. You turn over tables and people are just ready to follow you. And he's like seeing the crowds, masses, all these people forsaking everything, they're ready to walk with Him. And He says, you know what? I don't want you guys around me. He rejects them inasmuch as Nazareth rejected Him when He was up there. He comes to the temple. He does quite a few spectacular things. People are ready to support His cause and He says, I will have none of this. And he looks people in the eye and he says, I will not give myself to you, to you, to you, to you, because your motive is wrong. It says here in verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that they wanted to be free from Rome. He knew that they wanted to be free from the practices of Judaism and all the exorbitant money they had to pay, temple tax and sacrifices. He could sense in these people, they didn't have a need to know Him. They had a need for the issues of life to be delivered from that. And it's not like God doesn't want to deliver us from the issues of life, but it's as though He wants us to be connected to Him more than we love our father, our mother, or need deliverance from Rome, or deliverance from Judaism. It's as though He's looking and He knows they're testifying of Him in the flesh. Hey, everybody, come. We met a revolutionary. Here's a guy that's going to transform everything. He's doing signs and wonders, come on! And They're testifying. They are gathering and starting a movement and he goes and says, you know what? I don't need you to advance my cause. I know it's in your heart. You're not really for me as a person. You're just for me as a miracle worker. You're for me as a revolutionary. Do you all see that? And right there, he says, you will not know me. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to you about knowing God, on the one hand, I want to say it is God's pleasure to make himself known. It's his desire. Oh, he can't wait to reveal himself to us. But you and I take care of our motivation to know God. Just as much as Jesus rejected people here and said, you're not going to trump my cause, God the Father will advance my cause. And I'm not going to advance my cause through revolutionary means. I will advance it by the Spirit. Even so, the way that you and I approach God and the answers we demand from Him, God checks our motives at all times. Nothing is hidden from Him. So look back at your notes. Oswald Chambers says there on the right-hand side, Have I a personal history with Jesus Christ? The one sign of discipleship is intimate connection with Him, a knowledge of Jesus Christ which nothing can shake. He hints here that we need an intimate connection with Him, not just a connection of things He can do for me. So knowing God is, is also an issue of love. It's not just an issue of getting answers. On the right there again, it is a mistake to assume that human faculties and abilities alone can attain to the knowledge of God. Truly knowing God is a matter of God shining himself into man's being whose constitution is spirit and whose motivation is love. If you're in spirit and motivated by love, God will reveal himself to you. So the notes there, heading number one, God reserves himself to those who are motivated by love. So here it is, point number one. Um, Meredith, would you read point number one for us? To know God and to touch His real person in His deepest intentions is not a matter pertaining to the capacity of human thought, however clever, but rather an issue of the constitutional makeup of man's being before God. You and I's physical constitution is flesh and blood, is it not? Mm-hmm. But God is looking upon your spiritual constitution. If you're in the spirit, that's how you touch God. We don't touch God with the constitution of our flesh we touch him with the constitution of our spirit but in our spirit there is your attitude your motivation your agenda in your spirit and if your constitution in your spirit is pure and for the Lord and meek that is the condition of your spirit the elements working in your spirit God looks upon that constitution so the sub-bullet there, man's inner constitution must be spiritual in order to really know God. We touched on this in previous times. We cannot know God through the eye and the ear and even your imagination. We touch God through the constitution, the makeup, the workings, the dynamics of our spirit. It's so important. We must know God in spirit. Okay? Okay. Um, Go ahead, um, Rachel, keep reading that paragraph. However, man cannot know God by the condition of his fallen spirit nor fallen heart. These spiritual organs must be given afresh by God to match the kind of God. Only within this newness can man truly know, love, and enjoy God. So we need a new spirit. Then God goes, ah, I'm going to go ahead and give them a new spirit. Look at uh, the uh, verse there, Ezekiel 36. Um, Lindsay, would you read that? Um, I will also give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh. and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and my ordinances. You shall keep and do. So yeah, to know God, we need an inner constitution that is like a God. So God gives us a new spirit and a new heart. The spirit is the nature and kind of God, and the heart, that's the capacity of feeling. So God gives you a new spirit to contact Him, and a heart to love Him. That inner condition is what shines before Him at all times. When God looks at you, He doesn't look at my mind, my intellect, He doesn't look at my history or my future, God doesn't look at my flesh, my education, my upbringing, God looks upon the condition of your spirit. If that spirit is dead, he says, I'm going to make it alive. And he looks upon the inner condition of your heart. That is the motivation, the feelings within you. And God is like, hey, I'm going to put love in that heart so you can love me. And I'm going to put feeling for me in your heart. And I'm going to make your spirit alive. So once you have an alive spirit, Man, you are ready to know God. You're ready to know God. But, here's another bullet. Man's inner motivation must be love in order to really know God. Your condition must be of the Spirit and your motivation must be love. So you see here in John's Gospel, chapter 2, we're in Jerusalem And our motivation for following Jesus here is not that we want to be with Him and love Him and care for Him and really learn from Him. The bigger issue is, oh, we want to be free from Rome and we want to be free from the temple priests and all the the hoopla hoopla about it. So that's our motivation. And Jesus says here, uh uh-uh, reject it. This is not the people I want to interact with. So this inner motivation is a serious issue for God. And that's perhaps the reason why not many of us know God. Yes, we're born of the Spirit, so our condition is right on the inside. We have a new spirit. God gave us a new heart. But instead of leaning into the Spirit and into the heart of love, with a proper motivation to just know God, most of us want to know what God knows. Your motivation is a little off. It's as though God just closes the door on us. Not close the door on you for eternity and eternal life, but close the door on revelation. But I look at the right-hand column there, John fourteen twenty-one. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see that? Here, he did not manifest himself to the folk in Jerusalem. They never got his heart. They never touched his essence. There were a couple of folk just a stone's throw away from this area. Martha, Mary, Lazarus. There were a few folk like Mary Magdalene. They, they got his heart. The rest of us, we just wanted signs and wonders and miracles. And would you prove yourself? Our motivation was wrong. So you know the beautiful chapter there in Corinthians, love. We have to have that motivation if you really want to be intimate with God. Really know God. The motivation of love. Again in John 14, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make an abode with him. That word abode means dwelling. Another word you can write there is habitation. Does God only visit you, or does God dwell with you? It depends on your motivation before God. If you have a desire to love God and genuinely obey, your heart is tender towards God, your spirit is stirred unto the Lord, then you can expect God to just make a dwelling with you, to just to set up shop. That is, have a lifestyle of dwelling with you. But unfortunately... Most of us only visit God. And much of the time, God only visits us. And this is not as hard to just visit people. He wants to be Emmanuel, God, with you. Mm -hmm. Just at all times. Mm -hmm. But why don't you experience God with you? My motivation's wrong. Normally... When you approach God, it's not just to love him and touch him. It's to get answers. It's for him to show off a certain way. If your motivation is just a little off, it's as though you'll experience a blockage, okay? On the right, there's a guy by the name of Mark Guy Pierce. He says, let us think of God himself becoming our song. This is the fullness of and perfection of knowing God. So to know Him that He Himself becomes our delight. So to know Him that praise is sweetest and fullest and freshest and gladdest when we sing of Him. He who has learned this blessed secret carries the golden key of heaven. Nay, he hath fetched heaven down to earth and need not envy the angels now. In your new birth, you've been given a spirit by which you can contact and fellowship with God, and you've been given a new heart from which the Holy Spirit, who has baptized you in the love of God, you can in turn then love God. You're fully equipped to walk with God. You're fully equipped through your spirit and through your new heart to know your Lord, So what's going to hinder you from intimacy with God and fellowship with God is that you will revert back to the flesh and to your ambitions and your agendas and your secret motivations. And I want to tell you that if you're born of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will want to address every issue of defilement even in your spirit. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. God not only wants to cleanse you from the defilement of your flesh, your lusts, the issues of your mind and emotion and your stubborn, independent will, even in your spirit, there are still some maybe issues that are not quite well sanctified or well trained in the ways of God. And you keep lapsing back into your old creation habits and paradigms. I want to tell you that it is the burden of God to entrust himself to you. It was his delight to save you, to forgive you, and endow you with a brand new spirit and a brand new heart. But here's the question, will you walk with God from that spirit and love him from that new heart where the Holy Spirit himself even gave you the love to love him with? Or will you do it your way, perhaps culture's way, religion's way? Well, how do you know God has entrusted His heart to you? Bottom line is, you'll enjoy God. You will not mind keeping company with God. Prayer is an absolute bliss. Walking with God is just—it it, just—it's the highlight of your day. If. God is not your enjoyment, but you just have to endure God, and God is a bother to you, and God is a checklist and a chore, then you are not in the reality of God's heart, fused with your heart. Again, it is the burden of God to entrust himself to you, but if you love the world, if you still love your old creation lifestyle and habits, and you're not really coming to God for God, then the fruit of it is a cold heart, an apathetic heart. I'm reminded in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said the very first saying on the mountain, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens when your spirit is emptied of yourself and you are freed and unfettered and unloaded from the affairs of this world, but you're just coming to God for God. then Jesus said, yours is the kingdom of the heavens. I remember also one particular church father who said something along the lines that all riches that is not Christ to me all riches that is not just God Himself is but poverty to me. Can I ask you, is God really your Alpha and Omega, your beginning and end, your any and everything in between? Is, is God really the object of your worship, or is God a means to get? Do you really, really just want God? Check your motives, because based on that, you will enter into deeper intimacy and fellowship with your Lord, or you'll be left out in the cold, and miss out on some of the depths of God's heart. Beloved, don't miss out. Check your motives, let the Holy Spirit deal with it, and come on in to the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.